0: Our text this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter four, verses fourteen through thirty. You'll find it on page uh, pages eight fifty nine and eight sixty in your pew Bible. And uh, while you are looking for that, uh, it's in this passage that we see uh, Jesus. He's preaching, and the congregation is responding. And we will see that uh, preaching what people don't want to hear can be dangerous. Um, above all, I want to focus on this question What did Jesus say that made people want to kill him? Well, let's find out. And beginning at verse 14. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. All right, what did you just hear that you think would make the people in Jesus' hometown, his hometown synagogue, want to kill him? Uh, That's a question that's not very easily answered. But I think it will help if we spend just a little bit of time acquainting ourselves with the context of the story that we just read. Uh, First, uh, there is a chronological context. Uh, The story is really out of order because in verse 23, uh, Jesus mentions that he has done uh, miracles in Capernaum, uh, where he says, you know, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb and so you see the the the, the verse up here on the screen Um, but we don't read about these miracles that he performed until later in the chapter Uh, so what Luke is wanting to do here is he has a special purpose for moving this story to uh, the the beginning of the chronology of Jesus ministry you know actually we see uh it's kind of an outline of what Jesus' ministry is all about in uh, the, this episode of his life. And I think, uh, you know, Luke puts it here as kind of a preview of uh, what is to come. So you had the ministry of the word, you had Jesus offending the religious people, uh, we had the scandal of grace, the rejection of his own people, uh, there's the foreshadowing of the cross, the attempt to put Jesus to death, and there's also an eyebrow-raising miracle. Uh, Did you catch all of that when we read it a a moment ago? All right, so that's the chronological context. Uh, Second, there is the geographical context. In uh, verse 14, we see that Jesus had just returned from the desert where he had been tempted of the devil for 40 days. And uh, we see that he does not return all beaten up and bruised for having done battle with Satan. Instead, Luke tells us that he comes uh, back to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So what was his destination? Where, where do you think Jesus would logically go after having spent you know 40 days in the desert and he has face every temptation that Satan has thrown at him and now he is filled with the spirit and he is ready to to begin his ministry, where would the logical place for him to go? Where would that be? Well, I think most people would probably say Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem was a lot closer to the, the, the Judean desert where Jesus was. So it makes sense to go to Jerusalem for that reason Uh, But there are other reasons to go to Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was the big city. That's where the temple was. That's where all of the religious leaders were stationed. That's where you would go if you wanted to have uh, some theological discussions with some learned men. Uh, that seems to be the obvious place where Jesus would go to begin his ministry, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes all the way up to the northern part of the country where he was raised, and he uh, begins his ministry by going to small synagogues in small towns. So what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us, among other things, that Jesus thinks that significant things happen in small churches and small towns. So that's where he went first. So, there we go. You feel better already, right? All right. So, uh, Jesus goes around. He's preaching uh, the gospel, and eventually he comes to Nazareth. Okay, what do we know about Nazareth? Yep. Well, this is the place where Jesus grew up. It's where uh, Joseph and Mary were, were, were from. And uh, although their ancestral family was you know, from Bethlehem, uh, Nazareth was the place where Jesus grew up, and uh, now, after having gone off um, for a, a while and having returned, he he comes to Nazareth, and um, now he goes to the synagogue where he grew up. You know, so, all of these people that he's going to be speaking to, he grew up with them. Uh, you know, they've known him since he was just a little boy. All right, so that is the geographical context. So we've got the chronological context. We have the geographical context. And uh, now I want to go to the, the, the narrative context uh, or, or, or the context of the narrative, which is the, the religious context. Okay, so the, the Lord began his ministry during the year of what was supposed to have been the year of Jubilee. The year of, of, of Jubilee is is something that the Lord established um, to bring liberty to captives and uh, set the slaves free and uh, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, but the Jews never really observed Jubilee, maybe because uh, if you're going to have to set the captives free and you're going to have to forgive debts, that the people who own slaves and the people who you know, held mortgages and, uh, you know, notes for other loans, wouldn't want to have all that canceled and and lose their wealth. Uh, So maybe that's why they never really observed Jubilee, Uh, but but, but God intended this to be a a, a time that, you know, every um, um, every 50 years, so that would be seven periods of seven years, and then the next year would be uh, the, the, the 50th year, and the uh, slaves would be set free, the debts would be camp- canceled, all of the land that had been lost because it had been sold to pay off debts would be returned to the original owners. And uh, the, the intent was that on the year of Jubilee, uh, everybody got a fresh, clean start. And uh, God just lavished his grace on the people all right uh this is a phrase that i don't want to pass uh through one ear and out the other i want it to stay there for a moment so i'm going to say it again the year of jubilee was the time when god lavished his grace on his people okay hold that in your mind we'll come back to it in a little while well, as I mentioned previously, the people of Israel, Israel never really observed the the, the, the the year of Jubilee. And uh, so we have that uh, as part of the religious context. Something else we have as part of the religious context uh, were the expectations that the people had of who the Messiah would be. What kind of person would he be? So uh, the, the, the dominant understanding was... The Messiah would come and he would overthrow the Romans and he would restore uh, Israel to its former glory that uh, it enjoyed in the days of David and Solomon when uh, they were on the throne. And so uh, the the Jews also regarded themselves not only as God's favorite people, uh, but they were God's exclusive people. He, He liked them a lot everybody else he despised in fact uh, there was a common belief among the, the Jews at that time that the Gentiles that is you know people who were non-Jewish were created by God only to keep the fires of hell going so I mean that's the I, I gives you a little sense of how much animosity uh, there was between the, the the Jews and the Gentiles but uh the Jews always thought of themselves as uh who's God's favorite you know that, that's us uh he loves us for a reason. We're very lovable and uh, just uh, highly deserving of, of, of God's favor. So that's part of the religious context. Uh, so, you know, we have Jubilee, we have this understanding of who the Messiah would be, and uh, all of this led to something else. It, it, it led to a strong resistance a strong resistance to the lavish grace of God. Jews did not like it when God showed grace to anybody that they thought did not deserve it. All right. Now, before we move on, it should be noted that the people in Nazareth came to the synagogue that Sabbath day with high expectations. They had heard that Jesus had been going all over Galilee with his ministry, and they had had heard that he had done some pretty amazing things in Capernaum, which was you know, about 20 miles or so away. So the expectations of Jesus were high. They were expecting to see some miracles, uh, you know, showtime or uh, you know, healing time. All right, now that we have the chronological, the geographical, and the religious context of the story, uh, let's dig into it layer by layer and look for the answer to the question that we raised at the beginning. What did Jesus do or say that would make the people that he grew up with and went to church with want to kill him? Well, let's go through the text a little more a little more a little more methodically, and we'll see if we can find the answer. Well, the attendant brings the scroll of Isaiah to Jesus. There was a section of scripture that was to be read. Uh, from the prophet uh, in, in the synagogue and so Jesus opens the scroll to what we would recognize as Isaiah 61. Now it's important for us to know that uh, the uh, chapter divisions you know where you had chapter one chapter two and three uh, and so on and verse one two three and so on that would not come for several hundred more years so all you had was uh, just the the scroll uh, that was written in in Hebrew. And the fact that Jesus could find it so readily is an indication that he was very familiar with the scriptures. And so he takes the scroll and he begins to read and uh, he says, um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the lord's favor and then jesus sat down that's what a rabbi would do so in in a jewish synagogue uh you know the, the the rabbi would uh stand and read the scripture and uh then he would sit down and began to teach, and the, the people there would be, you know, gathered at his feet. That's why we, we say that even today that when you were studying from someone that you sat at the feet of uh, uh, a renowned scholar or a teacher or something like that, so uh, that's where all of this comes from, and then after the uh, reading of the scripture and the, the preaching of the scripture, there would be a time of questions and answers, sort of like we used to do uh, in uh, previous years, uh, there will be a time of discussion after the sermon. if anyone uh, had a question or wanted to go a little deeper, uh, we, we have precedent you know going all the way back to uh, you know thousands of years ago. And so Jesus uh, finishes reading the, the scriptures and then he expounds upon it. but after Jesus finishes the text. Uh, Luke tells us that he, began, he, he begins to teach. And uh, what is the first thing that he says after he finishes reading the scripture? It's uh, provided for us here in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? This scripture that Jesus had just read about the, the favorable year of the Lord and the, the setting free of the captives and and uh, all of that which was talking about the the year of jubilee is is Jesus saying that this is the favorable year of the Lord? This is the year of jubilee. This is the time when God is going to set His people free from 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 bondage and uh, restore sight to the blind and. Set at liberty those who are are oppressed. Is is that what he is saying? You know, he's saying that and he's saying more. What he's also saying is, my life is the message. My life is the message of this section of scripture. Actually, you know, Jesus' life is the message of the the, the whole Bible. And then uh, when uh, Luke tells us that he began to say to them, it's important for us to understand that Jesus' sermon consisted of more than just reading the scripture and saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he sat down and uh, they had the benediction and everybody went home. Uh, there was a longer sermon. Uh, Luke just uses a literary uh, device to say. Uh, he began to say to them, but uh, what he mentions uh, this uh, This uh, scripture is fulfilled in in your hearing. This was the attention-getting part of what Jesus said. It's really got people's attention. So, as we follow through uh, the church service that day, verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, you think about that. They were obviously impressed. Jesus was doing everything very very well and then we come to the next line where we see the people beginning to change uh, their mind about Jesus and they said huh that's an editorial hum but I think it was probably there they said is not this Joseph's son in other words uh, we know this kid (laughs) yeah uh, we, we've known him since he was a toddler. Uh, he, he can't really be the Messiah. Uh, we, we know who he is. There's a rather famous, uh, I guess I'll say famous, uh, theologian, uh, preacher, and scholar at uh, Duke, uh, William Willimon, uh, recognized by people across denominational lines as a a very articulate and uh, effective minister and um, he also serves as the director of the DMIN program at Duke and um, before he had that position uh, he was a bishop and he uh, was the minister to the, the, the Duke campus so a high profile guy. So one morning he's sitting in his office while he is, it's it's Sunday morning and he's doing last minute preparations. It's nice to see that the high profile guys do that too. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting in my office, um, you know, hours before church starts because you got to get ready. And so he's sitting there and the phone rings and he picks up the phone and, uh, the voice at the other end says, Hey, uh, could you tell me who's preaching at, at uh, Duke chapel this morning? And so, um, William Willimon says uh, Dr. William Willimon minister to the university silence then the voice says oh isn't he that short fat guy That not all that impressive uh, yeah he's the one <laughs> now this is sort of the way it was with Jesus when he goes back to Nazareth they think oh Jesus, we know him. Uh, isn't he that uh, you know kid that uh, you know used to hang around Joseph's carpenter shop? And didn't he help make Aunt Matilda's end table and her nightstand? You know uh, things like that. And you know Jesus picks up on that he said to them, they didn't say it, he just picks up on it, he said, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Well, let's put this in a context that makes sense to us. Uh, Suppose Jesus um, grew up in Charleston. He's one of us. And then he goes off for a while and when he returns, uh, he doesn't come right back to Charleston he goes to Mattoon and he's doing miracle after miracle after miracle in Mattoon and word gets out and you start thinking hmm I wonder if Jesus will come to Charleston and do miracle after miracle after miracle here let's go see. So they go and they're waiting and Jesus is not doing any miracles. And now they're really incensed at him because he's doing doing miracles for the people from Mattoon, but none for the good people, his people who live in Charleston. See, that's kind of the way it was. So consequently, the people of Nazareth were really disappointed in Jesus. He did not do what they expected. And let's pause here just for a moment. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus because he didn't do what? what you expected him to do, or what you wanted him to do. Yeah, you have. You don't have to nod your heads. Uh, We're all that way. We have all been disappointed with God. We have all wanted him to come through for us. We have all wanted him to perform some kind of miraculous deed uh, to either heal someone or get us out of a jam, But, Jesus doesn't always do that, and he's not doing it here. And uh, instead, uh, we come to the next uh, uh, verses here. Here's what Jesus says, beginning in verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there, well, let's go back to uh, just the the, the widow for a moment. So uh, doesn't this sound kind of strange when they're talking about Jesus not doing miracles and... What Jesus does is he goes back and makes a reference to uh, 1 Kings 17 and the prophet Elijah and uh, saying, you know, there were a lot of widows in the land of Israel, but um, Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent to this widow who lived in Zarephath in the land of uh, Sidon. Uh, Sidon uh, belonged to Phoenicia. It was on the Mediterranean. It's present-day Lebanon. Uh, but what's important for us to, un- to understand in this context is that this was enemy territory. This is where the bad guys lived. Uh, this is where the people uh, who would declare war on you or just come and raid you and take your stuff and your, your people. Uh, so the, the, the people of Sidon uh, were, were enemies. They did not worship the one true God. They worshiped Baal. Uh, nasty people as far as the Israelites were concerned. But that's where Elijah was sent to minister. And so the the message is uh, really beginning to bother the people of Nazareth as as they hear this. Uh, Why is Elijah? Why why is Jesus telling about what Elijah did so long ago about this widow with Zarephath? And what's so wonderful about this widow with Zarephath, anyway? uh, Have you seen her resume? She hasn't even got a resume. You know, she was as low on the socioeconomic scale as you could get. And when Elijah finds her, he, uh, he he sees that she's gathering up sticks. You know, she's going to build a fire. She has a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil left. And uh, after she makes those little bread cakes, uh, she's going to share some with her son. And uh, they're going to eat it. And then that's it. Uh, they have no food left. And so... Uh, the widow assumes that they're just going to die but they have this little bit of food that they're going to eat first and then Elijah comes up and you know what he says to her he says give me a little cake first huh she's only got she doesn't have enough for herself and for her son and now we got this guy Elijah uh you know who comes from Israel he's not one of them and he comes up and he asks, uh, put me first. I, I, I want to I split your, your, your meal with you. And she's not real sure about that, but Elijah says, uh, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And then she went and did as Elijah said now did did she have any reason to believe that if she were to give him her food that she would have food for the next day the next week the next month and that is until rain came does she have any reason to believe that what Elijah is telling her is true he's not one of them no she doesn't really Um, you see Jesus is making a contrast here the people he grew up with people who were his neighbors and friends possibly family as well are really disappointed in him because he's not doing miracles and Jesus is contrasting that with what Elijah did or what God did through Elijah with this widow of Zarephath who uh, you know lived in a, a, a different country, a, a heathen country. And she had faith in God even though she didn't really have any basis for that. She believes Elijah. She shares her food with him and then she has a supply of food that, that lasts until rain comes and they all live happily ever after now that's not what happened you know what happened is you know sometime after this event where uh, she feeds Elijah and miraculously uh, she's got plenty of flour she's got plenty of oil but one day her son dies he just flat up and dies and she runs to Elijah, and you know, she starts asking the kind of questions that we would be asking. How could you let something like this happen? You know, I, come, I, I trust you. I give you my last morsel of bread, and you, 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 you take it, and, and, and then God does this. and uh, So Elijah uh, takes the boy, uh, the dead boy, takes him up to the room where he was uh, sleeping in the widow's house. She had provided lodging for him there. And he begins to inquire of the Lord, God, uh, what's going on here? And then, you know, he intercedes uh, for the the boy, uh, places his body up against the boy and cries out to the Lord. And scripture tells us that the Lord hears Elijah and he restores life to this little boy. And then Elijah takes the boy who's now alive and takes him downstairs to his mother and there is great rejoicing that is here. Now, before we had the New Testament, you you might think, uh, this is really a great story. But now in light of the New Testament and in light of what Jesus is saying to his hometown congregation here in Nazareth. What do you think he's saying? He's saying there was a resurrection that happened long, long time ago. You've heard about it. But this is a picture of a resurrection that's going to take place that is absolutely going to change the lives of those who have faith in God. He's making a stark contrast keep that in mind as we think about the question we're asking what did jesus say that would cause people to want to kill him so uh, let me comment on what jesus is effectively saying to the people he's saying you are more needy than this widow you are farther away from god than she was even though she was a Canaanite because she had faith and she did what she was told and uh, effectively what Jesus is saying is before this sermon is done you are really going to hate me (laughs) because uh, religious people don't always want to hear that they're in worse condition uh, spiritually speaking than a pagan idol worshiping starving widow but Jesus is not done. He tells another story It's about uh, Naaman. There are many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. That shouldn't be Luke 4.27. That should be uh, 2 Kings 5. I didn't make the correction. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I was wrong. This is Luke 4.27. Jesus is quoting uh, 2 Kings 5. Apparently, I'm all messed up, and now I'm distracted by other things going on. So, uh, all right, here's here's what was happening. And and uh, in in those days, nations like to go you know raid other nations. Uh, you know, some guys would go hunting and fishing today or play video games, but in those days, uh, they'd like to go on a raid. And uh, so, uh, you know, they go and they they raid uh, other people. So the, the Syrians had raided Israel. And uh, they had captured a lot of people and made slaves of them. And one of the ones that they had captured was uh, a little girl from the land of Israel. She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Uh, this is from Second Kings 5. So let's put this in contemporary context so that we can understand it. Let's imagine that the Canadians uh, would come and invade our country. It's not going to happen. Uh, the Canadians are not mean people. Uh, they're actually very nice and very friendly people, eh? Uh, so let's let's imagine, though, uh, that the uh, Canadians come down and they kidnap all the junior high kids and take them back up to Canada. And some of you were saying, see, the Lord does answer prayer. You know? <laughs> but some of you will be very sad because you had junior high kids or you teach junior high kids. And you'll be like, look, they took all our junior high kids. The Syrians came down and took our junior high girls. And, and uh, then in uh, the, the third verse of 2 Kings 5, uh, we, we see what happens. There's this girl, uh, this junior high kid who had been kidnapped you know, by the Syrians, who's now a, a, a servant. And uh, she says, uh, you know, would, would that my Lord, uh, with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So this is Naaman's uh, slave girl, and she's quite a girl. Uh, here is you know, someone who had been kidnapped, taken away from her home, taken away from her family, and now she has to go live in Syria, which is a totally different place. And uh, there is, to this day, there is fierce animosity between Israelis and Syrians. So if you've been reading the papers lately, <laughs> uh, there is. Uh, still a a lot of animosity there but uh, this girl is concerned about Naaman and she says you know if if only we could get her if only we could get him uh, to you know connect with uh, Elisha he could cure him you know how many people have been cured of leprosy up to this point that's a zero, no one had ever been cured of leprosy it was a fatal disease, there was no cure for it, it was a slow agonizing death but um, Naaman decides that he's going to go do that so he goes to uh, his king and his king uh, drafts a letter to send off to the king of Israel and basically said something like this uh, I am sending Naaman, uh, captain of the army, to you uh, so that uh, you may cure him of his leprosy. Oh, great. Uh, the, the king of Syria is here to pick a fight with me, thinks the, the king of Israel. He knows that uh, there is no cure for leprosy. Who does he think I am? Does he think that you know I am God, that I can kill or I can bring life? Uh, he's trying to pick a fight with me, saying that you know I refuse uh, to do what he asked, and even though he is sending an entourage with uh, you know, coins and treasures worth uh, some commentators said maybe $25 million. Uh, some have said maybe even up to $1 billion. So let's put this in contemporary context. Let's say that uh, someone like uh, you know, Bill Gates or uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk comes in to this church and he says, uh, "I hear you serve a, a powerful God. I have an incurable disease. Uh, will you help me? Uh, here's my visa card. Uh, spend as much as you want. Uh, by the way, there's a $1 billion dollar limit to it, uh, but there you go. So Naaman thinks of himself sort of the way of, of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos might think of himself today. He thinks, I am an important man. I have money. I have influence. I have an impressive resume. So I should get preferential treatment from this prophet's God. And so he comes and uh, he comes down to uh, Elisha's house. And Naaman is expecting that Elisha will come out and he'll do some impressive uh, ritual where, you know, he waves his hand or something and uh, the leprosy will be gone. But he doesn't do that i mean he doesn't even come out to meet naaman at all what he does instead he sends his assistant out and uh, the assistant says um i uh, sorry but you know uh Elisha couldn't make it you know a conflict uh in the schedule and so forth uh, something more important comes up and uh this is an editorial reading uh, by the way uh, But here's what you're supposed to do. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be made well. And Naaman is not happy. He is not happy at all. He expected something more dignified. But to be told to go dip himself in the Jordan River, he says, are not the Arbana and the far far, uh, far cleaner rivers than what we find here? You know, I passed better rivers on the way down here. Why can't I go dip myself in one of those rivers? How far away was the Jordan anyway? It was about 40 miles away, which is, you know, a, a pretty good distance when you got to walk. The Jordan River, by the way, is not a pretty river uh, in this part of the, the, the country. It's, uh, it's muddy. It's not uh, it's It's not clean looking. And the idea of having to get in the water there and dip himself, you know, those seven times. And can you imagine? He goes in and he dips himself the first time and nothing happens. Third time, you know, nothing happens. Fifth time, the sixth time. You begin to wonder, why is he going through with this until he gets to the, the, the seventh time? And then, you know, miraculously, you know, he is healed. The scripture says that his skin was made like that of a baby. Just as pure and spotless. And I think the Holy Spirit had the the writer of 2 Kings 5 to record this for the benefit of those who will be living in the age after Jesus came when we would read that when Jesus says if if anyone's going to you know, come to, to him he would have to humble himself as this child he makes uh, many references to children to to babes uh, the, the innocence there and how we have to have that same trusting attitude and that's all there so Jesus finishes telling this story and then what happens when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath now you just heard these things and I'm looking at your faces and I don't see wrath which is a good thing for me you know um but it does prompt us to ask the question why were they filled with wrath aren't these good stories shouldn't they be hey that's those are great stories but they're not doing that uh effectively what jesus is saying let's let's try to understand what's going on here because When they heard these things, you know, they were filled with wrath. And the next thing we we see is that they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him up to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. These people are ticked off. What was it specifically that Jesus said, or what was it that he said between the lines that got these people all riled up? Well, Effectively, here's what Jesus is saying to the people in the synagogue I'm not here to save you from people like Naaman. I'm here to tell you that you need to become a person like Naaman, a person who realizes that he is helpless and in need of the grace of God. And the people of Nazareth were offended. You know, we sing the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. People of Nazareth might have sung a song that would sound more like uh, Disgusting Wrath, how offensive the sound that saved a wretch like him. They didn't like the idea that someone else who was not part of their community uh, was receiving grace from God, you know, way back. So this is what made the people want to kill Jesus. He has offended them with grace. Grace was offensive to them, so offensive that they did their best to kill Jesus, who let them know that it is only by grace that God saves and restores anybody. No matter how good your resume might be, And the great thing about the gospel is, you know, we all have resumes, don't we? A resume is something that you you send out to a prospective employer, uh, you see a job that's been posted and uh, you would like consideration. So you wanna make yourself look really good, Uh, very effective, very capable, very valuable asset to whoever would hire you. so you're putting your best foot forward and so, when people read your resume, they'll think, oh, we need to talk to this person. But you know, we're always putting our resume out there, not just to employers. uh... resume might look something like this uh, You know, you want to see my car, it's nice and clean and shiny. Actually, it's not, it's kind of beat up and dirty on the inside, you know. Um, but y- you want to see my wife, you know, trophy wife. You want to see my kids, um, fantastic kids. You really ought to see my grandkids. They are really awesome. You know, These are the kinds of things we put on our resume for people to see so that they will be impressed with us. Okay? And so the, the people of Nazareth, you know, they all had resumes. They thought Jesus should be impressed with them, that God should be impressed with their resumes. And effectively, what Jesus is saying is, give me those resumes. And he takes them and he just just, rips them up like that. No more resume. Instead of the resume, you're going to get a resume that has at the top Jesus Christ. You're going to see his character. You're going to see his accomplishments. You can see what he did to please God. You can see what he did to overcome Satan. You can see all that he did in his life and his ministry. You will see a line through the name of Jesus Christ, and you will have your name written there. That is grace. And that is what Jesus is proclaiming to the people of Nazareth. And they hated him for it. They hated him for it so much that they wanted to take him and throw him off the edge of the cliff. And as he is being led up to that hill, it points to another hill that Jesus would walk up one day. Only that hill was named Calvary. And Jesus would not be pushed up the hill by the townspeople he would be going on his own accord. Due to his love for his people and love for the Father, he would lay his life down. He would be pierced with nails on a cross, and there he would bleed and suffer and die so that grace, lavish grace, can be poured out on the people of God. this is too good it's, it's too good to ignore the year of jubilee had come and in the year of jubilee uh, God lavishes his grace on his people maybe you haven't experienced the lavishness of that grace it's an open invitation there, there is always an, an open invitation and this is an invitation of sorts also to um, to receive the grace the, the lavish saving grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord let's go to him now in prayer. Gracious Father, as we consider the amazing uh, the story that we had just read and uh, studied together and to uh, see what you are saying, not only to uh, the people that you grew up with in Nazareth, but are also saying to us that... you have come to take our place and you have come to put us in your place. Uh, That's just almost too awesome to believe that it can be true. But we know it is true. And we ask that it will be true in the lives of those who are empty, uh, who are looking for life looking for freedom from sin of whatever variety grateful that you included us those who by nature are not children of God but are children of wrath as your word says and yet you died for us while we were yet sinners truly amazing. Through Christ we pray. Amen.